thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. This is the Fighter Pilot Podcast, episode 84. Hold on to your hats, folks, because this week we're talking politics, systemic racism, global climate change, worldwide pandemics, and gender inequality in the workplace. All right, well, not really. Look, all those are important topics for other shows, but here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, let's stick with what we're good at. And for this episode, that means the fourth generation Delta Wing fighter designed in France in the late 70s and still operational in a handful of countries around the world today. That's right, we're talking the Dassault Mirage 2000. Hit it! Welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Aiello. Hello and welcome to the show. I am your host, Jello. This is episode 84. And joining us this week to help discuss the Dassault Mirage 2000 is Matthew Carbone, formerly a French Air Force fighter pilot. Bonjour, Matteo. Comment allez-vous? Bonjour. Ça va et toi, Jello? <laughs> All right. Well, that's as far as I go with French. How are you today? I'm pretty good. Uh, pretty wet weather here in Hong Kong. But anyway, very good and ready to rumble. Yeah, so we've had a bit of unrest and demonstrations here in the United States, and uh, you've had quite a bit of that in Hong Kong over time as well. Is that still happening? Yeah, it's still happening. But anyway, you know, as not a lot of people knows, Hong Kong is pretty wide. Even if it's some several islands, just on my island, uh, we don't have any protests right now going on. Now it's pretty spread, and you just can't see a lot of protests. It's mainly downtown just in the part of uh, what we call Kowloon and Hong Kong Island. So yeah, that's pretty fine. Okay. Now, you and I met just not too long ago. I was a guest on your show. Why don't you tell us about your podcast? It's the 9Gs podcast, right? Yeah, the 9Gs podcast, a navigation podcast. I try to do my best interviewing people uh, and especially professional pilots and trying to share their point of view and their life. So yeah, it's very interesting. And thank you for coming on the 9Gs podcast again, Jilo. Oh, you're welcome. I have not listened to it yet, but I hope to do that. And it was a lot of fun. And if nothing else, I found someone to speak of the Mirage 2000, as well as you <laughs> turned me on to this system called Zencaster, which makes remote recording a little easier. So we're going to try that for the first time here tonight. All right. Well, so let's start with you. Uh, where are you from? Tell us about your military history and what are you doing now in Hong Kong? Yeah, so I'm from France. I was a French fighter pilot in the French Air Force. 
basically, I grew up at Dunkirk, that is a town very north of France that is well known uh, due to the World War II history mm -hmm. and as well uh, very recently due to the Christopher Nolan movie as well. Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> then I grew up there. I did all my high school, uh, graduated in high school. And then I was uh, lucky enough to do all the selections and to join the French Air Force, aged 18, in the, so in the French Air Force and going in Salon Provence for uh, officer class. Mm. Just before uh, going to uh, the French Air Force, age 16, I began flying at Dunkirk, flying general aviation in a small uh, light aircraft. And then it was a lot of fun because of uh, the position of the city. And uh, you have Belgium, you have as well England. And that's very nice. And flying in the skies where a lot of World War One and World War Two actions took place, that was very nice. Okay. Anyway, I joined the Air Force in uh, 2006. And then I was uh, lucky enough to start it very young. That allowed me to get out very young as well, to be able to move to the civilian life. In the French Air Force, uh, I graduated fighter pilot in 2009. Then I was lucky enough to uh, be assigned to the uh, GC-12 Stork Squadron, flying the Mirage 2000-5, Groupe de Chasse Indocigogne in French. So initially in this squadron in Dijon Air Force Base, then in Luxeuil Air Force Base, because we moved the squadron in uh, 2011. And then it was a lot of fun because I was flying air-to-air -air missions and the Mirage 2000-5 with a bunch of very good friends and a very nice atmosphere and it was very good just to fly on this mission. I see. Yeah. Then in 2015, I was lucky enough as well to be assigned to the Advanced Jet Fighter Training School at Caso Air Force Base in the southwest of France. And then I flew during five years the Alpha Jet, just teaching some trainees to fight with these jets because they've just been graduated from the French Air Force Fighter Pilot School and we just teach them how to fight and doing some uh, BFM, so basic fighting maneuvers, mm -hmm. what we call dogfights. So one versus one, two versus one, as well as some air-to-ground strikes, even if I was not very specialized on that thing. Right. Uh, we try to teach them uh, that stuff and close air support to the weasels and some of uh, firing range just to shoot live ammunitions. And then finally, in uh, 2019, I decided to uh, move to the uh, civilian world because of the, at that moment, it was hiring a lot. And I thought that in my position, being uh, 32 years old and being able to just move at that age with that situation, it would be very nice and very convenient for everybody, for the airline and for myself. So I passed all the uh, licenses and I was finally selected by a major career in Asia, flying at Hong Kong, the A330. That's where I am right now. Okay. Flying is a big word, as you know it, uh, due to the worldwide pandemic. Oh, yes. And yeah, so I'm just lucky to be there, to have a job, to fly in this magnificent European-made Airbus A330, and just to try to, to build the hours and just to enjoy the Asian life as well. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And Hong Kong's not a bad place to do it. In fact, I have a friend who helps with the show who lives in Hong Kong. And I think if I connected you guys, it sounds like you're not too far from each other. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we live exactly, I think, uh, around 400 meters away from each other. So yeah, that's uh, the world is it's pretty small. Very small world. Okay, awesome. Well, we're going to talk about the Mirage 2000, and you've already touched on it, so I just want to jump right to this point. Yeah. Is the Mirage 2000, there's different variants, so if one is an air-to-air -air variant, is that all it does? Like, the FA-18 is designed to do both, 
And I'm not necessarily saying that's better because it's difficult to do all the missions well. But you said you mostly did the air-to-air role? Yeah, exactly. In the uh, GC12 Stalk Squadron flying the Mirage 2000-5, we do only air-to-air missions. That means that we fly the version of the Mirage, that is the Mirage Mm 2000-5 for the French, that is only able to do air-to-air missions. We can add some software on this version that will allow us to do air-to-ground missions and as well some wiring systems that we have to reproduce because due to the new missiles uh, that we just plugged in in 2006, it was just removed. The wiring capacity of the uh, air-to-ground version of the Mirage 2000-5 was removed. Due to that, we do only air-to-air missions. Okay. That's pretty nice. Now, air-to-air is what the Mirage 2000 was designed to do in the first place. Is that correct? Exactly. It was initially designed to replace the uh, Mirage 3 and Mirage 4. Basically, what the French Air Force and Dassault wanted is to build uh, supersonic, being able to uh, fly a Mach 2, so Mach 2 capable aircraft, and uh, being able to do uh, initially air-to-air missions and then air-to-ground missions. Mm. So uh, basically, it was designed yeah, for air-to-air and afterwards air-to-ground missions with the twin-seaters. Okay. So you probably think uh, the best role for it is air-to-air, and I assume it does that well. Does it do both roles reasonably well? Again, I know they're different aircraft, but how good is it as a fighter, and how good is it as an attack aircraft? As a fighter, it's pretty good. I mean, the radar is very good. It's a mechanical radar. It's not uh, what we call active radar. It's mechanical Mm. radar, and the features of the radar are very, very good. It's a well integrated platform in terms of pilot stuff. You just have everything that falls under your hands and that's very well designed and very well capable uh, due to, for example, initially the airframe uh, that is very nice flying uh, basic fighting maneuvers and be, uh, doing as well some uh, BVR missions mm-hmm. and due to the system that is very efficient. Even if it's a, let's say, fourth generation aircraft, we can compare the Mirage to the F-16 Uh, You just have everything that falls under your hands, and that's very nice. Mm. Uh, Now, to answer to your question about the air-to-ground version, that is uh, currently the Mirage 2000D, it's as well efficient. It has a very nice terrain-following system. It can as well just deliver uh, some pretty good air-to-ground weapons, as well as GBU-49 and all that air-to-ground weapons, being able to carry some cruise missiles. And in that role, it's yeah, it's pretty good as well. Okay, it's not at the level of the fourth and a half generation and fifth generation aircraft, as you can imagine, because uh, the Rafale, uh, for example, and the F eighteen Super Hornet and all that stuff mm-hmm. are way more capable than the Mirage two thousand, because it was designed in the late seventies and the first flight happened in the late seventies as well. Just have to replace things back in that period, I think. And that's a fair assessment because the original F-16 and F-18 were also designed then. But of course, there's been so many modifications since, including the Super Hornet in this case, which is frankly a a whole new airplane, but does have, like you said, the active electronically scanned array radar. So my guess is the Mirage has been updated over time, but maybe in some regards they said, well, we'll move on to what, the Rafale? There's only so much they can do perhaps with the Mirage 2000? You know, it was upgraded, but it was not 
that upgraded compared to the F-16. Mm. And I think because of the difference of size, first of all, uh, from France and USA, we don't have the same size. We don't have the same jet as well. Uh, being honest, the defense budget is way different. And the attention was focused on the Rafale because it was as well designed in the uh, mid-80s, I think, the Rafale. And yeah, mm -hmm. we thought everything was going to work for this aircraft and it was supposed to be the first flight in the mid-90s, but finally it happened, the first operational flight in the mid-90s, but finally it happened in the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. Well, it seems like as time progresses, aircraft designs take always longer than they say they will and costs far more money than they should. So, okay, well, let's talk about the different variants. And we've got the Mirage 2000B, and that's a two-seat variant for, I believe, training. And now you said you flew the 2005, but the first air-to-air -air model, I think, was the 2000C? Yeah, basically the 2000B and 2000C are the same. Okay. The 2000B is the twin-seater version of the 2000C. The system is the same. It was initially aired to uh, do some air-to-air -air stuff, flying only in this mission and firing only air-to-air -air missiles as well as FOX-1 missiles and FOX-2 missiles. So okay. uh, it was pretty the same that the Sparrow, the AM-7 Sparrow and mm -hmm. the uh, AM-9, I think it was Papa or something like that firing some Super 530D and uh, Magic 2. This is the basic version that we had. We had as well some air-to-ground version that was the uh, Mirage 2000 NK2 or 3, something like that. And uh, we had as well the air-to-ground version, the Mirage 2000D, that was a later improvement right. of the uh, Mirage 2000N. The Mirage 2000N was initially designed, as you can imagine, and is for nuclear. That means that they were supposed to do the nuclear strike and it was dedicated squadrons that were assigned to uh, this mission. Mm. The Mirage 2000D later on was only designed and let's say focused on doing some air-to-ground missions including air-to-ground strikes, so low-level strikes, medium-altitude strikes and as well close air support that was very present especially during the Afghanistan war and uh, later on during the Syria and Iraq war. Gotcha. Then finally, the Mirage 2000-5 version that came in 1999 uh, was the improvement, the upgrade of the Mirage 2000-C. The airframe was pretty the same. We had no improvements on the airframe, but the system was way upgraded. Uh, it was FOX3 capable. All the sensors were uh, very nice. As well, the system uh, was rebuilt to have only FEC screens. Uh, you had uh, something like five screens, including head-up display. And it was very nice to build the situation of awareness at that moment mm -hmm. and flying Fox 3 missile. And then that was the Mika missile. Mm -hmm. And then being able to integrate uh, due to the later uh, version of the Mika, the Mika infrared, so Mika IR that was fitted with infrared seeker. Being able to integrate this missile to the Mirage 2000-5 in uh, 2006 was a big jump in the version. So the different Foxes that you're speaking of, again, the Fox 1 would be like a semi-active homing missile, such as the AIM-7 Sparrow, that you have to illuminate the target for the missile to home in on the illuminated energy from your radar. And then the Fox 2 is like an infrared guided missile you can fire and forget. And then the Fox 3, again, the active guided missile like an AMRAM or like you said, the Mika. Yeah, exactly. For the 2000B, 
you said it was very much just a C, but with the extra seat. Was that ever used for air-to-air? In other words, would there be like a two-seat air-to-air version, or was it mainly just a two-seat C version, but used specifically for training? No, it was used specifically for training. Okay. Yeah, basically, we didn't fly for any operational mission because, first of all, the Mirage 2000B doesn't have any gun. Uh, okay. When you have the two-seater version of the Mirage, you don't have any gun. I know that they are currently working on just carrying an external pod, having a gun for the Mirage 2000D, being able to do some strap deliveries. But basically, the twin-seaters version doesn't have any gun. Okay. And then for the Mirage 2000N, the nuclear version, that is a two-seater, as I understand. And then without getting into too much detail, but just in general speaking, it wasn't a free-fall weapon, I believe they trained to. Was it a standoff missile that they would fire so they had a chance of getting out of the way, essentially? (laughs) Yeah, correct. Okay. It's a way standoff uh, missile. And... Okay, well, let's be glad we never had to uh, try that out. All right. And then, so is the 2000D also then a two-seat version for the air-to-surface? Yeah, the 2000D is a two-seat version for the air-to-surface, exactly. Okay. They, they have a weasel on the back seats, and that is dedicated to mm-hmm. all the systems, all the uh, laser parts. Gotcha. And they do only that, and it's a specific job for them to do. Will they carry, though, any self-protect missiles, either Fox 2 or otherwise? Yeah, uh, they carry some Fox 2 missiles, the Magic 2, okay. initially. And I know that, I think it was 2020, that, is, that Mirage 2000D is supposed to carry some uh, Mika infrared missiles. Mm. You know, the same version that we have on the Mirage 2000-5. That is a well, well good missile. Now, there's other variants because this aircraft has been pretty widely proliferated. And we don't need to speak of all the different variants that go to the different countries. But according to my list here, obviously France, but Brazil, Egypt, Greece, this thing's been around quite a bit, right? Yeah, exactly. We just have to think about it, about the two versions of the Mirage. You have the big uh, Mirage 2000C version and the big Mm -hmm. Mirage 2000-5 version. The Mirage 2000C version was exported initially pretty early. Then the Mirage 2000-5 was exported lately after the Mirage 2000C. Right. Knowing that the export version of the Mirage 2000-5 has sometimes some air-to-ground capability. Mm. And especially for the Greece, I'm not sure about Taiwan, but for the Emirates, they have air-to-ground version as well. It's a Mirage 2000-9. It's basically the same than the 2000-5, but with some additional features and air-to-ground version as well. Okay, so it's more of a multi-role fighter then? Yeah, exactly. Okay, fair enough. Well, so you've flown mainly the 2000-5, as I understood. Yeah, exactly. Mainly only the 2000B and 2000C in uh, training just before my assignment in Orange, but I flew only the Mirage 2000-5. Okay. Now, as far as the looks go, obviously... For you, I'm sure you could tell me at a glance a difference between a 2000C and a Dash 5, and we don't necessarily need to get into all those fine details, but what can you tell us about the looks in general? I mean, obviously, it's a Delta Wing. To me, the rear end looks a little bit like the Gripen, or the Gripen looks like the Mirage 2000, however you want to look at it, but what can you tell us about the way it looks and the way it was designed? Yeah, basically, the way it looks is that you have Delta Wing and you have single engine, but no canard. First of all, that's the difference with the Gripen. Okay. So you don't have any canard. The Delta Wing was designed initially to be very efficient, uh, especially in the uh, basic fighting maneuvers. The flight characteristics in air-to-air 
engagement and especially uh, close combat doing some basic fighting maneuvers in one versus one or two versus one are amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we call the nose authority, that means that the ability to point the enemy in a very short period of time is very good. Yeah. Especially uh, without any drop tanks or with only the center line drop tanks. It's very amazing. And this is the main feature of the Delta Wing. As well, the Delta Wing is very stable, especially combined with the fly-by wires. It's a very nice tool. Right. I understand it has leading edge slats and trailing edge flaps. And again, if it's fly-by-wire, it can decide when it uses all those to be as efficient as possible. Exactly. The computer of the aircraft, the fly-by-wire computer of the aircraft decides everything. And the fly-by-wires of the Mirage 2000 are amazing. It was well-designed, well-protective. It doesn't have any trap. And this is awesome. For example, if you put the Mirage 2000 nose up at 90 degrees climb, and then you release the stick, and you wait because the aircraft is going to fall, of course. Mm-hmm. And then reaching 100 knots, you just try to move the stick and look behind at the flight controls. You will see that nothing is happening. The aircraft protects you. It controls the aircraft. The flyby wires control the aircraft. And just they say, okay, no, you can't do that because you will just lose control. And this is amazing. It's very protective. And it's a very nice tool. Those flyby wires and the computer that is fitted, the Mirage 2000, is very amazing. It's different mm. than the Rafale. I was lucky enough to fly the Rafale a little bit in the back seat only, and I had stick a couple of times. Yeah, it's completely different. Huh. It's uh, not the same fly-by wires, especially due to the airframe. You know, the Rafale airframe. Sure. You have as well the canals, and the center of gravity is not the same. Everything is, is different. Mm. But the Mirage 2000 fly-by wires are amazing. <laughs> well, I sometimes quip on this show, Matteo, that it's really fly by vote because the pilot will put in the inputs and in a traditional airplane like that you flew over Dunkirk, if you manipulate the ailerons or the rudder, you get that. But in an aircraft like what you just described, it's smart enough to say, "Mm, no, I'm not going to do that now because (laughs) if you do, you'll depart. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. All right. What's it like to fly? I mean, is it the joy? Is it easy? Is it somewhat challenging? I mean, again, your experiences are somewhat limited to a little bit of time in the Rafale or the Alpha Jet, but did you find it to to be very pilot-friendly? Yeah. It's pilot-friendly as long as you don't just crew up during the landing, really. Ah. You're landing with uh, 14 degrees AOA, and the engine nozzle is uh, very close from the ground. If you just go more than 0.5 to 1 degrees up, that means up to 15.5 degrees, Mm -hmm. then you're going to strike the nozzle, the engine nozzle. And this is not good. good. This is a trap that is uh, very sensitive because it goes very fast, especially during the landing. If you do a flare too late or too early, you're just going to strike the engine nozzle, and this is not good. But except this part, this is a very nice aircraft to fly. The feeling you have flying this aircraft is amazing. The fly-by wires combined to the autopilot, it's very user-friendly. You can handle it very nicely and it's very smooth. I mean, there is no lot of vibrations. It's amazing the way it flies, especially in, in basic fighting maneuvers. When you can fly and when you see the nose authority you have, when you pull Gs, you can pull up to nine Gs uh, flying the Mirage 2000. That's very nice. And I don't know the note authority you have flying the F-16 because you, you flew it a little bit. 
I think it's you can compare it to the F16. Okay. Perhaps a little bit higher node authority than, than that. It doesn't have the features of the Hornet with the high angle of attack specificity. You can have flying basic fighting maneuvers. But this initial action is very nice. And just feeling the aircraft is very nice. But, you know, you can bleed so much energy flying the Delta wing mm-hmm. without noticing it. That means you begin your, your merge at 450 knots. Then you put full afterburner. You put a stick full, full back, and then you just, you're padlocked. That means that you just have to maintain the enemy aircraft in visual. Mm-hmm. And then if you don't look at the speed, you will bleed down and go down to 200 knots without knowing it. Mm-hmm. So you just have to pay attention to that because you don't have so much vibrations. And these can be sometimes a trap. Oh, for sure. And you have to get to the point where you can recognize the subtle indications of it. One of which, of course, is the fact that you're not pulling so many Gs anymore as you get closer to that corner speed. But uh, So let me ask you this, though. If you did find yourself making that mistake, and I bet a lot of young Mirage pilots do that, if you are careful, can you quickly add energy back or does it take some time like it does in my F-18? Yeah, this is the specificity as well of the Delta wing shape is that you have to release the stick and push forward because uh, due to the shape of the wing, you can't just speed up the way an, a conventional aircraft does, for example, the F-16 or perhaps the F-18. Uh, you just have to release the stick and push the stick down. The point as well is that if you don't do that, sometimes you can just maintain you know, the nose traveling along the horizon. That means you're still turning. But the Mirage will dive. You will not notice it due to the, the high angle of attack and the delta shape. You will have the nose high, but you will just be descending. And this is something that is as well not so good because we teach that to the young guys right. just to know and to just to have a look on the FPM, so the flight path marker, mm-hmm. that if the flight path marker is below the horizon and that's your thing that you are turning in a level turn, that means that you don't have that much energy guy and that you have to do something before going to the hard deck or the ground in, in the war missions. Right. And yeah, it's a special feature as well. Well, and I always thought that maybe training in that regard was a little harder because in real life, you would be down next to the trees or the houses, wherever you happen to be fighting. And we've had some people on this show that talked about fighting over Vietnam all the way down to the treetops. And I don't know that I want to try that, but I think there's an actual part of your brain that's going to say, okay, this is real. Those trees are getting big. And it's not like an arbitrary hard deck that we use in training where it's no different than right below it, except that it's uh, an altitude in your heads-up display or on your helmet. Yeah, exactly. That's what we say as well to the trainees that, okay, we have hard deck, we have combat deck, you know, soft deck, combat deck, hard deck. But in the real life, you will see the trees and uh, sure, you don't want to hit the trees. No. You just don't want to be like two, three knots of the stall speed just at the treetop level. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, that's never good. Uh, Self-preservation is always important. Mm -hmm. All right, so it pulls 9 Gs. Have you had it up to 9 Gs or more? Yeah, up to 9 Gs. Basically, if you stay in the aircraft envelope, it pulls up to 9 Gs. The flyby wires are limiting you to 9 Gs, but... You know, you have a kind of stick envelope. Mm-hmm. You come in full back stick and you will feel a little force. Then it's kind of a spring force. You can 
overpower the spring. And if you do that, you go outside of what we say, the fly-by-wire envelope. Mm. And with that, you can pull up to 11 Gs, but you don't do that because you will for sure break uh, and just yeah. screw the, the airframe. So this, this <laughs> No, you good. don't want to explain to the maintenance people. All right, no. so what's the most you've ever pulled then? 9 Gs in the Mirage. All right. How about what's the highest you've ever had one and maybe what's the fastest you've ever had one? Yeah, so uh, the highest is uh, fly level 500. This is the, the ceiling of the aircraft. We can go above, okay. but we don't have any stratospheric special uh, pressurized suit. Right. So this is not good. Uh, so we go up to fly level 500 and it's a Mach 2 plus aircraft. So we go to Mach 2.2. This is the fastest we go. This is very nice. And a, a little story about that, about the Mach 2. I, I went to uh, Mach 2 plus once in my life. And then one of the most amazing stuff is that you are obviously with an aircraft that is sleek. You don't have any drop tanks. You don't have any special weapons underneath the wings. And you are in a perfectly sleek aircraft. And reaching Mach 2 and Mach 2.2, that is the maximum Mm -hmm. speed that you can have, you have to stop the aircraft because it will continue to speed up. Oh, wow. And this is just amazing. When you look at the size of the engine, it's basically that big engine compared to the F-18 engines or F-16 or Gripen engines. It's a big engine, and the fastest you go, the more speed it wants to have. Because of the ram air? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And you just have to stop it because... If you don't stop it at Mach 2.2, <laughs> you will just hit another limit, what we call the uh, impact temperature that will go above 153 degrees. If you go above this temperature, you will have some problems, for example, with nose cone that will begin to melt and all that stuff. So you just don't do that. <laughs> no, don't do that. <laughs> I think that's been the theme so far today, Matteo, is uh, don't do the things you shouldn't do because yeah. maintenance will have to speak to you when you get back and yeah. probably your commanding officer. Okay, yeah, exactly. Let's move on to armament. Now, you've already spoke to some of it, but let's just recap. Now, start with, I believe, a twin 30 millimeter cannon. Is that correct? Yeah, it's uh, mounted uh, with a twin 30 millimeters cannon only on the single seater versions. So, no guns on the twin seater. Okay. It basically, so I will begin with the air to ground armament. Basically, for the Mirage 2000D, they can carry some GBU 12, GBU 16, GBU 24. GBU-49 as well. They can carry uh, cruise missiles as well as CALP. That is the French cruise missile. And before that, the Mirage 2000N was able to carry the nuclear weapon, the what we call the ASMPA. Mm-hmm. For the air-to-air version, we can carry so Mika missiles. Mika, so um, that's FOC-3 missiles. Mm-hmm. BVR missiles, so Mika-EM that has an electromagnetic seeker and ICA-IR, that's an infrared seeker. We can carry it, and this is very efficient. For the Mirage 2000-5, so the air to air version, we can only carry those missiles. I know that those missiles are going to be upgraded. Normally, it should be in the 2020 or 2021. We will have a new version of the missile that is a Mika new generation, and that has improved features. But this is basically all the, all the armament we can carry. Okay. So for the GBU-12 you spoke of in the 16, those are laser-guided weapons. Does it not have a GPS-guided equivalent, like a JDAM, we would call it here? Yeah, I think it's a GBU-49. I thought that was a laser JDAM or something. Anyway, okay. Uh, Let me (laughs) double-check, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) No, no problem. And then I think probably general-purpose weapons as well, 
any sort of like uh, air-to-surface rockets or cluster munitions or anything like that? No, they used to carry some rockets, but it's not anymore in use. I know that the flight test center, the French flight center, try to just improve this and just to put back the rockets because it can be a very efficient kind of contact guerrilla features and uh, warfare. But I don't know where is it. I think it's in progress and they're going to use rockets in the next future. But right now they, they don't use it. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, I'm doing a quick uh, search here. It looks like the GBU-49 is like a laser-guided weapon, but perhaps has some extra capabilities so that you can have... I mean, I'm trying to scan it quickly, but it possibly has some uh, GPS-type integration, looks yeah, like. So, yeah, perhaps, anyway. yeah. Okay. And then, let's see, um, obviously, you're not doing any kind of mines or uh, maritime or surface mines or anything like that? No. No, none at all. And I thought you said earlier some of the earlier versions could carry some of the Western missiles like the Sparrow and the Sidewinder? Uh, no, no, it was uh, a Sparrow type and Sidewinder type. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, gotcha. That the uh, Super 530D and the Magic 2 that were, sorry, the previous versions of the French missile we carried. Okay. Now, I understand now. I thought you said the actual weapon, but what you meant was something very similar. Yeah, very similar to those moments. How many total weapon stations are there? For the air-to-air version, uh, there is uh, six weapons stations. Okay. You can carry a basic load is what we call 402 plus. That means four active missiles. Mm-hmm. So that's for three missiles and two Fox 2 missiles. You can mix it up to go up to uh, 006 plus. That is uh, very nice. For the Mirage 2000D version, I know that they're upgraded it and they can carry now uh, for GBU-49 in the center um, fuselage weapon station. And basically they can carry as well. They have multiple pods. They can carry uh, multiple loads underneath the fuselage or uh, the wings. Okay. Basically, the auto protection missiles, the self protection missiles, are uh, carried as well by the uh, Mirage 2000D, and uh, they can carry two self protection missiles, two Magic 2 uh, right now. And for the gun, where we can carry over 500 rounds in an F 18, at least in the Hornet, you're carrying quite a bit fewer than that, but they're much larger rounds. Yeah, it's uh, 30 millimeters uh, rounds and it's uh, 250. You have uh, 125 per gun Mm -hmm. and you can carry up to 250 bullets. That's a very nice gun because, of course, very high velocity, very high speed of firing as well. You can just select whatever you want. You can choose it and it's a very nice gun. Having two guns is good because of redundancy. You can have one gun that fails during the um, strafing pass, Mm -hmm. and then the other one will take over. Anyway, it will not take over, but... Keep going. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it will keep going and maintain its own rounds. So, Matteo, when we had Spider-Man was his call sign on the show, he was our F-15 guest. Yeah. That also was pure air-to-air. I asked him about, did they ever train to using, as an air-to-air pilot only the cannon for air-to-surface. And if I remember correctly, I think he said a little bit, something along those lines. When you were in your squadrons, was that ever a capability you trained to or no? Yeah, definitely. That's funny you asked that because <laughs> I was one of the first guys to fire air-to-ground strafe on the Mirage 2000-5. But it was basically a kind of medieval stuff because we were uh, shooting on the, the fixed cross, you can just adapt, uh-huh. putting some uh, melee radiance down or up, and it was the case for us. So we were shooting through the air-to-air strafing mode, 
the cross uh, with the milliradians set uh -huh. in a good value with a good angle with a good altitude of firing and basically it was it worked very well and it was kind of experimentation we've done mm -hmm. and the scores were very high i remember that we were firing at 490 knots minus 10 degrees i don't remember the altitude and the range of firing those rounds but yeah it was very efficient and if you aimed well yeah, it was going well in the uh, in what we call in the CKPM in on the target. Oh yeah, well that is a large round in the first place. So if it's going to hit something lightly armored or soft uh, humans, for example, that's not going to be a good day for them. Yeah, especially with the two cannons, it's not the same that the A10, of course, because this is the ultimate air-to-ground gun, in my opinion. Right. The two guns of the Mirage 2000 are pretty efficient. Mm, okay. It was designed to fly fast and at treetop level, carrying 24 nuclear weapons. Today, it bristles with smart bombs and guided missiles. The B-1 bomber, called the bone by those who fly and maintain it, is the most heavily armed bomber ever built. Sleek and powerful, the bone remains a mainstay of American air power 50 years after its first flight. Hey everyone, this is Ken Katz, Call Sign Primetime. And my book, The Supersonic Bone, A Development and Operational History of the B-1 Bomber, tells the true story of this magnificent airplane. In this book, you'll read stories told to me by those who were there and see lots of great photos of the bone. Anyone with an interest in modern military aircraft will enjoy reading The Supersonic Bone. Available through the usual online retailers and aviation booksellers. Pick up your copy today. So moving on to strengths and weaknesses, what would you say is one of the greatest strengths of the Mirage 2000? One of the greatest strengths of the Mirage 2000 is the ability to be able to point an enemy doing some basic fighting maneuvers in 1v1, what I call the nose authority before that. Mm -hmm. This is one of the biggest strengths of the Mirage 2000 is yeah, the maneuverability. This is very amazing. Even if the, the engine has not been upgraded as we want it to be, providing more thrust, but increasing the fuel consumption, I know. But yeah, this is one of the best features of the Mirage 2000. As well, the autonomy. The autonomy is amazing. Uh, with the multiple drop tanks, we have some huge drop tanks that we can mount underneath the wings of the aircraft that are 2,000 liters. And those 2,000 liters drop tanks are amazing just to give some autonomy back. And especially in the, in the cap mission or in the air-to-ground low-level assault it's amazing to see mm -hmm. how far you can go and how long you can maintain in the air i've done a lot of operations with you guys with uh, the uh, navy or the u.s air force it was not operations it was exercises sorry and we were kind of always first in last out it was very nice to be able to have such autonomy yeah, it sounds like it. Do you have a data link system or we didn't talk too much about avionics and that's usually what I do, but do you have a method for communicating with other aircraft through data link or something like that? Yeah, we are full uh, link 16 capable. Oh, cool. The NATO link 16 and yeah, we are fully capable uh, with that. The Mirage 2000-5 and the Mirage 2000-D. Okay. Is there something you wished when you flew it that they would have fixed or maybe if they spent a little more money could have been a little better? Was there ever something that was just kind of bothered you about the airplane? Yes. Uh, let's say that <laughs> you can always add another engine. <laughs> Having a twin engine uh, should be great. 
as well the HMS, the head-mounted system that uh, yes. would be very nice in terms of upgrading the situation awareness and upgrading the capability uh, using the L16 to see where your women are and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. I wish we could have that. And I wish we could have as well quicker upgrades of the missile of perhaps the avionics. The radar, I will not touch it because honestly, this is one of the best mechanical radar right now. And mm. it's really amazing. The system as well, the way it's fitted, the way it's come under the hands of the pilot is well, well, well thought. It was amazing. Mm -hmm. I will not change that, especially I think because it's my first aircraft, of course, but... <laughs> <laughs> your first love. Yeah, you know that yeah. you always fall in love with your first aircraft. Oh, but yeah. but uh, yeah, I will improve engine and the uh, HMS as well. Okay. Is there any discussion about adding an HMS or is it just at this point maybe? No, it's too old. <laughs> yeah. No, it's too old. <laughs> yeah. I think the discussions right now and all the money and all the efforts is going to the Rafale. Mm, okay. This is normal because this is the best aircraft we, we have in the French Air Force. Well, I confess, I really didn't know much, and I'm guessing the listeners are saying, yeah, no kidding uh, right now, but I did not know that much about the Mirage 2000. You've really helped me understand it better, but where would people know it from anyway? Is there in any movies in France or elsewhere? Is, it, is there a demonstration team? Yeah, we had a movie that was uh, released in 2005 that's called The Sky Fighters, the air-to-air scenarios. The landscapes, uh, all the air-to-air -air scenes are very nice and very beautiful. There is no computer-realized um, images. And it's very amazing the way it has been filmed and the way it just looks on the screen. I will no, just not comment the story, but you know, you, <laughs> you know what it is. We have as well some pretty famous, very low-level flying on YouTube, but this is not official, as you know it. Uh, of course. Well, in fact, we have a question coming up about that, Matteo, that I'll be putting to you in just a moment. So I thought, did I see, is there a demonstration team or is there not something with, because the image we're using on our social media this month, and I should know this if I'm using it, but it was provided to me by one of our team members, mm -hmm. but it looked like it was taken from uh, one of the teams maybe that flies this airplane. Yeah, I think it was that we're flying the Mirage 2000D. Okay. We had some tactical displays where scheduled the past 10 years. Initially, the Mirage 2000N, then the Mirage 2000D. I'm pretty sure that we'll have some tactical display as well of flying the Mirage 2000-5, and I hope so, because yeah. uh, this is very nice to demonstrate and with the eye angle of attack maneuver that you can do and the shape and the way uh, the Delta wing flies, it's very nice. But we don't have uh, what you have in the Air Force, like the Thunderbirds or the um, the Blue Angels flying the F-18. We don't have that. Um, what we have in France is a Patrouille de France that is flying the Alpha Jet, the aircraft I flew uh -huh. uh, during my training period. But we don't have uh, that kind of uh, display in France. We have only tactical display. But right now, I think it's pretty post right now. How many hours did you end up with in the Mirage 2000? I ended up with around a uh, little bit less than 1,000 Mirage oh, 2000 flight hours. <laughs> all right. And so in all those flight hours and all those flights, is there one particular mission that stands out in your memory? Either something exciting happened or maybe if you deployed uh, something real world that you can share with us? Yeah, so I have a pretty nice mission that happened. 
It's not a mission, it's a moment in the mission. I was sent at Djibouti. We did some overseas deployment at Djibouti. It was a two-month deployment, and we have a base, a French base at Djibouti. And I was flying in the in the course squadron in Djibouti. We had one guy that uh, he took a day off. He brought some Air France cabin crew doing a boat tour. And then I was uh, supposed to fly uh, during this slot, during his boat tour, and he called me on my phone. He told me, okay, Matteo, the tradition there at Djibouti is if you have a guy that is doing some turns on the water with the boat, you know, some circles on the water, that means that he saw you and it's a friendly. And if you had a phone call with him and if he invited you to do a low pass and if you have the fuel and that you want to do and that the situation allows to, you can do it, of course, respecting all the safety standards. Sure. And then he told me, yeah, I will be there reaching the entry point and I will do some circles on the water. So after the mission, then leaving the area to Djibouti, uh, we went to the entry point with my wingman and guess what I saw? I saw his boat doing some circles on the water. So due to the situation, my wingman was a little bit uh, low, not low on fuel, but he had less fuel than myself. So I let him just slightly above, uh, reaching uh, 4,000, 5,000 feet. Mm -hmm. Then I went to do a flyby. So I've done the flyby, so I catch the boat, you know, in sight. And then I have to admit I was low, uh, so pretty low. And then I focused on, on all the elements doing a steady uh, flyby and a sharp flyby and not doing something stupid. And then reaching a beam of the boat, I turned my head and looked at the boat and I saw the two young ladies show me a part of their anatomy on the front of the boat. And then I told myself, I must be dreaming. You have to be kidding me. So I did the escape maneuver and then I climbed back, joined with my wingman, then going to the pitch uh, for landing in Djibouti base. And then after the mission, we met with the guy on the boat and with the two ladies. And then he showed me the video and yeah, I was not dreaming. And the, the two ladies were showing me a part of their anatomy. The story doesn't end there. The story ends when a couple of years later, <laughs> the boat guy married one of those two girls. So it was pretty, pretty fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure he's asking you to forget about that day now, but uh, come on, you're French. This isn't that rare. I mean, right? You guys, uh, anyway, that's the second time that something like that has come up on this podcast. I'm sure I'm going to catch grief for it, but appreciate that. <laughs> now, speaking of that, I have some listener questions that I want to run by you. And the first one is from Jim Gundog, and it's just like that. He says, I've watched some crazy low flying French mirages on YouTube. And so he wants to know what's the lowest you have flown. And of course, I have to caveat his question here, Matteo, because naturally with your wheels down, you've flown all the way down to the surface. But <laughs> let's say your wheels are up. What's the lowest you've flown? And I'll confess my lowest is about 80 feet in an F-18. Oh, so my lowest is a little bit below lower. So still at Djibouti, uh, we had a lake that is called the Assal Lake. I I'm pretty sure you guys from the Navy knows uh, this lake because you sometimes fly uh, in the vicinity of Djibouti and we've done a lot of uh, training mission with you. But anyway, I was flying over this lake and this lake appears to be below the sea level. So uh, we try always to fly below the lake, you know, below the sea level. And uh, it happened that with a good day, with a bit of wind, because this lake can be a kind of mywer shape, so you won't, you don't want to, let's say, screw up. But with a, a good day, with a little bit of wind, I've done something like, yeah, 30 feet above this lake. I was the lowest flying guy of the world at that moment. 
<laughs> because you were below sea level. Yeah. No, I've never flown around Djibouti, which for those who are wondering is on the Horn of Africa on the East Coast. But I have been there uh, on the ground, actually. We were there in 2003 looking at it as a possible base to do more things. And I think the Marines were there at, uh, is it what, Camp Lemonaire? Is that something? Do we share that together? Is that right? Camp Lemonaire? Yeah. Is that the one you guys use or do you use something else? Ah, Camp Lemonnier. Uh, so Camp Lemonnier is, if I do well remember, on the north part of the Djibouti um, Strip runway. And we have the French base that is on the south part of the runway. Okay. We have a complete uh, autonomous French base that is back from the colony time uh, when uh, Djibouti was a French colony. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. All right. I have another listener question from Diego Pagnoni, who says, how does Mirage 2000 behave when heavily loaded? In other words, is it still very maneuverable or does it become sluggish? And I think it's fair to say that any aircraft that's heavily loaded becomes sluggish, but how did the Mirage 2000 handle when it was loaded with, say, drop tanks and some missiles? Yeah, like every aircraft, the Mirage 2000 is, yeah, it's not that maneuverable when you're loaded. Mm -hmm. First of all, due to the fly-by wires, you have a switch that when you carry some load, uh, you have a switch uh, on the stores position. And if you put this one, uh, you will be limited in angle of attack. You will be limited in the G you can have and all that stuff, first of all. Mm -hmm. Then uh, due to the Delta shape wing and with the Mirage 2000 loaded, you will have some issues if you go too slow, right. definitely, because you will not have the ability to speed up quickly. You will be annoyed by this part. So this is a tricky point because of the Delta shape wing. Okay. Stephen Coat wants to know, and I think we may have already answered this one. If you could change one thing about the Mirage, in other words, a flight characteristic or a component or a system, what would it be? Yeah, so second engine or a more powerful engine and the HMS, the head-mounted sight. So it will be very nice to just to change that. But yeah. anyway, I will not change uh, something else. You know, it's interesting. Uh, this is uh, episode 84, and we've had a handful of single-engine pilots on the show. I think you might be the only one who's ever said you'd like to have a second engine on that airplane. Because I remember our MiG-21 pilot said that his 4,000 hours in the single-engine fish bed worked out well. Same thing for our F-16 pilot. So uh, is there a particular reason you like another engine just because is it uh, just for safety or was it not particularly reliable? Or I'm just curious why you feel like you would like to have another engine. Yeah, because I have a few friends of mine that ejected, that bailed out due to engine failure and especially butt strike. So yeah, <laughs> I wish I could not have a bailout and I didn't. That was nice to me. But yeah, due to that, because I knew a lot of guys that, not a lot of, but at least mm -hmm. two or three guys that bailed out due to engine problem or due to butt strike, for example. Well, and we are recording this in early June 2020, and I think it's starting to come out that it sounds like the problem, if you will, that brought down the snowbird with a fatality recently was because of a bird strike. So to your point, if that is correct, then that is a valid request. Yeah. Okay. John Salzberg says, what changes did the Israelis make when they modified the Mirage into the Kafir and why? But I think if I read correctly, the Kafir was modeled after the Mirage 5, not the Mirage 2000. Is that right? Yeah, correct. The Kafir was uh, modeled after the Mirage 5. It's 
completely something else than the Mirage 2000. Okay. The Mirage 5 is a, kind of the same version of the Mirage 3 that was the aircraft prior to the Mirage 2000. But anyway, if you want, I can answer him. The Kefir has been modeled so on the Mirage 5 and all the features that was modified by the Israeli Air Force came due to a French embargo because uh, of the uh, six days war that was happening between Israel and Egypt. And due to the French embargo, they were not able to have some extra engines, some extra systems and, and so on. So they had to just uh, build it. And the little story behind it is that they had Australian spy in the uh, Switzerland's engine factory uh, where uh, all the Dassault and all the Snecma engines were produced and they used this spy to steal some engines, plants, some engines, features to be able to just build their own engine. So this is the little story behind. Okay. Well, it sounds like the making of a good movie, perhaps. So, <laughs> all right. Now I've got three more questions. Two of them are the same and all of these were originally sent to me, but I've been trying to catch up on my questions anyway. So I'm going to have you help me out. This one is from Jeremy from Indianapolis. He says, now that you've done a number of shows on a wide range of aircraft, which you've got your podcast too, so maybe this is for both of us, is there one that you wish you had the opportunity to fly if things had turned out differently? Now, this is very similar though, Mateo, to a question from Adam Neroni, who asks, if you could have been a pilot in any foreign air force or Navy, what airframe would you choose to fly and why? So, all right, I'll start with you. What else would you have liked to fly out there besides the Mirage 2000? Yeah, it's a bit of my life story because I have always been interested on the French Navy. And I always wanted to join the French Navy after being in the, in the Air Force. And I tried to do so because we are able in the French Air Force and in the French armies in general to try to move from the Air Force to the Navy or from the Navy to the Army and blah, blah, blah. And I was at the end of my contract and I should have been allowed to do that because this is logical. I didn't want to continue with the Air Force and I just wanted to go to the Navy. And yeah, uh, one of uh, my, one of the French Air Force Human Resources Department guy decided that no, I was better to leave the Air Force than to go to the Navy, uh, even if the Navy wanted me to go because I was air to air specialist and they lacked of this uh, specificity. The point for me will be to fly, just to answer the question, will be to fly the Rafale Marine. Because this is a such magnificent aircraft with a nose high when uh, landing gear are down and on the ground with a nose high, with a strengthened landing gear, with uh, all the uh, characteristics and to be able to land on a ship, on an aircraft mm -hmm. carrier, it should be very nice. And this would be my, uh, my aircraft. You know, it's not very far from where I was, but yeah, yeah. I wish I could have flown the Rafale Marine. Okay. Well, uh, yeah, just as long as you're doing your landings in the daytime, Mateo, I would recommend. Uh, if you have to go do it at nighttime, it's not as much fun. But no, this question has come up for me before. I don't necessarily think I want to be in the Russian Air Force, but I think maybe one of the Su-27 flanker variants, maybe the one with thrust vectoring, would be pretty impressive to fly because that thing is just enormous, but it's also very maneuverable, has so much fuel and so many weapons that I think flying the flanker would be pretty cool. So 
that would be my answer to those two gentlemen. And then the last question, at least from the listeners today, is from Jim from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, here in the States. He says, based on your experiences or perhaps what you have learned from friends who flew overseas, what country most surprised you with their fighter pilot and aircraft ability? He's thinking of this like an underdog country of the skies. So this is a tough question, Matteo, but uh, anything come to your mind with the different folks you've flown with maybe over your career? Let's say that once I flew, I flew in Qatar in the um, Doha Air Force Base. Okay. This is the first thing that comes in my mind is that I was flying with a combat-ready uh, fighter pilot uh, of the Qatar Emirates Air Force. And he was flying the uh, Mirage 2000-5 version of the Qatar. And I was pretty surprised of his personal level. I think it's not in general, but this guy, he was good. I ordered him some uh, targeting. He targeted well. He reported well. He was in position. He joined up well and efficiently. He was a good wingman. Yeah. This was very surprising. Yeah, I enjoyed this flight, really. <laughs> That's good. That's everything you want in a wingman. Do everything he's told, nothing he's not, and speak up when you need to kind of thing. So, exactly. Yeah, good for you. Yeah, so my experiences are somewhat limited. I'm mindful of the MiG-29 episode that we had where a former guest returned as co-host, and he said that he had a chance to fly against the Malaysians and was really impressed with their abilities and uh, skills. But me personally, I didn't get a chance to do anything like that. I did have a chance to go to an exercise in the Netherlands called Frisian Flag. I was just a second cruise young lieutenant in my first squadron ever. I guess I didn't really know what to expect at that time. I had seen some, as I will call them, foreign pilots in the Navy training I'd been through, but didn't really think much of it because I was so concentrating on trying to make sure I <laughs> did well enough. But I remember going to that exercise up in Lou Warden and just seeing all the different pilots from different countries, but particularly the hosts, the uh, Dutch guys, and they were phenomenal. I mean, they spoke good English, much better than my Dutch, which is to say none. Mm -hmm. uh, they flew the F-16. They did it well, like it should be for a fighter pilot. When the day was over, they partied really hard. <laughs> and so this was in 1999. So world's a little different now, but uh, we had a lot of fun that I won't necessarily uh, go into too much detail here, but that was a really great tour. And I just, it opened my eyes to, okay, we're not the only kid on the block here with skills. Everybody uh, here, I think, uh, can do a good job. And, and the Dutch were definitely doing that. So I think that's what I would tell Jim. So. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Did you fly a bit with the French with us? I wish I remembered. I honestly don't remember who else was there. We had left the aircraft carrier, John F. Kennedy, to go to this exercise. I think we spent a week there. It was a whirlwind. So I don't recall who all was there, but I, I know obviously the Dutch were there because it was mm -hmm. their base. Yeah, obviously. All right, Matteo, we can begin to wrap this up. So what does the future hold for you? I mean, you're living in Hong Kong, you're flying the Airbus 330, which I agree with you is a wonderful airplane. I've only ridden on one once and I had a chance to check out the cockpit, look really nice. But is this it? You've got a good place, you've got a good job. Is this what the future holds? Yeah, the, the future right now due to the worldwide pandemic is... I just want to keep my job, first of all, and then... <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah, that's normal. And then just uh, flying a lot, building some experience and okay. just continue to fly. That's my in my mind right now. And I think it's a, in a lot of pilot minds. 
Oh yeah, for sure. And and I, my situation is uh, tenuous at best. I won't bore you with it, but pardon the personal question. Are you there with a family or are you there by yourself or? No, no, I'm there with my family. My wife is just in the, in the room <laughs> beside me. Yeah. And yeah, I, I have two daughters and my wife, they are the young, the two daughters, not my wife, okay. but uh, yeah, six and three. So that's nice experience, you know, to live an expat life. Yes, I'm sure. Well, I've never tried it other than being deployed in Japan for a little over a year, but that's great. And Please thank them when we're done here for your time, which has been wonderful. Now, before we let you go, we always have to ask everyone, how did someone come up with Mateo for Matthew? Is it Carbone, by the way? Did I pronounce that correctly before? Or how would you pronounce it in French? Yes, my last name is uh, Carbon. That's a bit of <laughs> French spelling, but <laughs> anyway. Uh-huh. Yeah. And um, yeah, the Michael sign came from uh, my class my initial class uh, joining the French Air Force, I was a fan and founder of a French comic um, that we're talking about the French Navy. One of the main characters was Matteo. So because uh, I'm called Mathieu, and that's Matteo, very simple. And then he stuck to me because no one succeeded on having a, a very nice game, uh, a very nice world game, let's say, with my mm-hmm. name. So, and with the call sign sounding good on the radio, because you have to make it sound good on the radio. Oh, yes, of course. We got to sound good and look good, but in the <laughs> end, hopefully that makes us actually be good. So yeah. that's important. Don't take a kill too quickly. Cool. Well, hey, before we wrap up though, Mateo, if you don't mind, I've got to do a little housekeeping here for the listeners. For all you DCS fans out there, we have yet another giveaway linked with today's episode three copies of the Digital Combat Simulator Mirage 2000C module are being generously offered by Razbam Simulations together with the Red Flag campaign built by our BVR Productions team member, uh, Baltic Dragon. So as many of you know already, the French Air Force uses the DCS Mirage 2000C for promotion and training and was lately involved in upgrading the module on the game to exactly match the capabilities of the real aircraft. So check the episode show notes and our social media platforms for information on this free-to-enter giveaway. And we've actually been doing a lot of giveaways lately. We had one for Thrustmaster, who we are in partnership with at the moment, as well as for the book The Silver Waterfall by our friend Kevin Miller about the Battle of Midway. It's historical fiction, and it's really good. So hopefully, if you didn't win any of those, you can also go to our shop page and look for the book and some of the Thrustmaster different modules available for you. Before we wrap up, we want to thank our new Patreon supporters. That includes Strike Leads Brandon Parr and Matthew Burke, aka Commander Mittens. The views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of myself and my guest and do not necessarily represent the position of the U.S. Department of Defense or the French Ministry of Armed Forces or any of their components. Matteo, it's been a lot of fun. I've learned so much about the Mirage 2000. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on this wonderful podcast. And I hope everybody's safe and healthy right now. And thank you very much. Oh, you're quite welcome. And uh, everyone, make sure you check out Matteo's 9G's podcast. We'll link to it in the show notes. And so thanks for joining us this week. Before you head out, stay tuned for a bonus from listener Russell, who is an aerospace engineer. He has some thoughts on the F-35 parts commonality that we discussed a few episodes back, and that will appear right after the closing flyby. You don't want to miss it. So that'll do it for this week. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BVR Productions. 
Got a question for the show? Send an email to questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to check out our website at fighterpilotpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. For exclusive Fighter Pilot Podcast content, check out our Patreon page. Please like, follow, and subscribe to the show. And don't forget to share us with your network. Thank you for listening. Hi, Jello. Love the podcast. My name is Russell. I'm an aerospace engineer in Los Angeles. In the most recent episode, you mentioned that the F-35 only has 35% commonality, and maybe that wasn't that impressive. I wanted to maybe give you a different perspective on that figure. 30% might actually be a really good number for three aircraft that are so different, like the F-35. An aircraft might actually have over 10,000 plus unique parts but three-fourths of those are actually primary structure, which is almost never replaced in the field. It is important to have common system components as they need to be replaced or overhauled much more frequently. A fuel pump might come on and off the aircraft every 100 hours for service and inspection, so it is very valuable to have this be common across all the fleet variants. Whereas part commonality doesn't really matter for some other components, like forward left wings bar number five, this part might never be replaced in the entire 50-year service history of the aircraft across all variants. So making this part common doesn't really add that much value. Having part commonality is always good for reducing the manufacturing cost, but it pays the biggest dividends for total cost for system and service parts. In that light, 30% might actually be really impressive if it is composed of the right things. Hope this gave you a new perspective. Love the podcast. Keep up the great content. Bye. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.